Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Isaac Watts is one of the most prolific hymn writers ever. He first published his hymns in 1707, and by the time of his death in 1748, he had published more than 800 different hymns, including Joy to the World, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, and, specific for our purposes today, when I survey the wondrous cross. This is now for us a powerful and a beloved Lenten hymn, but Watts originally wrote this song to be sung during or after communion. And it is a hymn that expresses the immensity of the sacrifice of Jesus and thus the immenseness of our response. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now, legend has it that during a church service in the mid-19th century, the congregation of St. Edmund's Church in London was singing this beloved hymn. And after the final verse, the pastor, Father Ignatius, blurted out to them, well, I'm surprised to hear you sing that. Do you know that altogether you only put 15 shillings in the collection bag this morning? Now, I'm not sure we should be using hymns to shame people into giving more, or that financial stewardship was exactly what Isaac Watts was after when he composed these lyrics. But Father Ignatius's indignation does express an important sentiment in this hymn. God does not just ask for a piece of who we are, but our soul, our life, our all. Everything we have and do is for God. Which should make this a rather difficult and convicting line to sing. Devotional author Jerry Jenkins writes in his book, Hymns for Personal Devotions, Perhaps it's the distance between where Watts encourages me to be and where I truly am that makes this hymn so hard to sing. 
It's a lofty and worthy spiritual goal to say that love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But how short I fall. How short we fall. How easily we settle for a 15-shilling faith, forgiving just enough of ourselves to assuage our guilts. We do the, the standard, normal, religious things that are expected of us. We go to church on Sundays, we pray before meals, we read scripture in the morning, all of which are good things, don't stop doing those things. But, as we said last week, have we actually surrendered ourselves to the love of Christ? Do we give our whole lives to God, our thoughts, our actions, our decisions, our worries? And I, I wonder if this is something that we struggle to do, and I think it's something we all struggle to do, if the, the paltriness of that which we offer to God stems from an inability to grasp the immenseness of his sacrifice. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Are you and I too easily pleased? Do we settle for a faith that is just there, chugging along in the background, loosely guiding our lives, instead of surrendering our lives? in awe of the incredible mystery of love and grace that is ours through the death of Jesus Christ. I think that that is the question that undergirds the entire book of Galatians. We have seen Paul's deep frustration with these people. You can just imagine him wanting to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and say, don't you get it? You keep messing around with this circumcision business. You keep settling for a faith that is marked by the things you do. When you could be surrendering your life to this incredible gift God has given you, the gift of grace, the gift that means freedom from shame, the gift that means freedom from fear, the gift that means freedom from death. So why? Why are you settling but Paul knows why they're settling. He knows why the folks who waltzed into Galatia and started preaching this gospel of Jesus and circumcision are doing so. It's because they're afraid. They are afraid of the people for whom the cross of Jesus Christ is offensive. Remember that many, many of the, these new Christians were once religious Jews. 
They grew up going to the synagogue, learning about God from their rabbi, observing the Torah as a mark of obedience. They still probably have relationships with people who practice Judaism. They still probably respect their rabbi. They still care what the community that raised them thinks. And for many people in those communities, the cross is foolishness. The idea that the Messiah, the divine messenger sent by God to save his people, would do so by dying on a cross. That he would let himself be whipped and beaten and mocked and nailed to a tree. Well, that just does not compute So the Judaizers, the folks coming in and telling people that they have to be circumcised, are doing so in part because they want to be able to go to those people and say, look, we have not totally gone off the rails here. We still believe circumcision is important. We aren't like those crazy people who seem to be throwing the law of Moses out the window. And look at how many Gentiles we have convinced. Look at all of the people that we have had circumcised, all of the people we have brought into good order and proper behavior. The Judaizers want to boast. They want to show off how faithful they are, how proper they are, how compelling they are, how obedient they are, how normal and right their faith is. But this is all these people care about, Paul tells the Galatians. They want you to be circumcised so that they can boast about your circumcision in the flesh. They don't actually care about you. They're willing to make you go through this pain and affliction just so they can add one more member to their tally. You are an entry in their faithfulness account. But this, says Paul, is nothing to boast about. The only thing that means anything when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our life lived with God, when it comes to our salvation, is the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul has more reasons to boast than most people. In Philippians 3, he lays out all of these reasons. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But all of these things, he says, are garbage compared to knowing Christ. To gain Christ and be found in him, he writes. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. On September 13, 1885, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this text at his church in New York. And he pointed out that Paul could have gloried, could have boasted in any other part of Jesus' life, and it would have made more sense to us. 
He could have boasted in the wonders of the incarnation, the blameless life that Jesus led, the miracle of resurrection, the awe of the ascension, the thunder of the second coming. But no, he glories in the cross of Jesus, in Jesus' death. Why? Because everything hinges on the cross. The history of grace, writes Spurgeon, begins earlier and goes on later, but in its middle point stands the cross. Of two eternities, this is the hinge. Of past decrees and future glories, this is the pivot. The cross changes everything. On the cross, the just died for the unjust, says Spurgeon. The innocent bore the crimes of the guilty that they might be forgiven and accepted. This is a new thing, unmatched in the other religions or philosophies of the world. The idea that a perfect God would take the place of an imperfect people and bear the punishment they deserved so those people might be forgiven and welcomed into God's family. The mythology of the gods of High Olympus, says Spurgeon, contains nothing worthy to be mentioned in the same day with this wondrous deed of supreme condescension and infinite love. And yet. And yet how often we fail to comprehend the immensity of this sacrifice. And we settle instead for something smaller, more finite, and ultimately more controllable to assure us of our salvation. On Friday, a friend sent me an article from Mockingbird Press published in October 2021. The author, Ian Olson, reflected on how COVID had exacerbated existing divisions, leading to an inability of all parties to work together to create effective solutions. He wrote, these divided responses have given rise to bitterly policed shibboleths and ideological boundary markers delineating who is pure and who is impure. Ours is a world in which the response to a deadly virus has become freighted with ideological baggage. Impurity is mapped onto boundary lines between factions. And I think that all across the church, in all parts of the world, we are mapping impurity onto boundary lines between factions. We want, we desire, rightly so, to keep sin and death at bay. We want to be holy. We want to live honorably and uprightly before God. But to do that, we, we construct or we cling to laws that assure us of our rightness, our holiness, our salvation. And these become the boundary lines by which we test the purity 
of others. Are you circumcised or uncircumcised? Do you support Israel or Palestine or both? Are you vaccinated or unvaccinated? What is your position on same-sex marriage? What school do you send your kids to? Which political party do you support? How much money do you give to the church? What does your prayer life look like? None of these questions are unimportant. They're all questions worthy of our time and our discernment. But if we use our answers to these questions to boast in our own faith, in our holiness, in our godliness, then we have missed the mark. We have settled for something too small. It is only Jesus, through his cross, says Olson, who guarantees our salvation and thus makes possible our holiness. We look to Jesus, he says, because no one else is equipped to fight the forces of death on our behalf. Alternative Christs fail to adequately confront and deal with these forces, but they do more than fail. They perpetuate and spread that impurity further and deeper into the fabric of our shared lives, poisoning trust, fracturing our bonds, and sowing death. Placebo saviors thrive on our fears of these forces, and they promise higher walls and stronger defenses to stave off impurity. But the fortifications of which they rhetorically paint pictures and the ones they actually build all disappoint and erode over time. They cannot deliver on their promises to deliver us from evil. Only the one who overcomes our fear of death and its defilement who raises the dead and rises from death himself, can liberate us from its tyranny. And to him there is no Jew and Gentile, no slave and free, male or female. In him death is defeated and made the vehicle of our salvation. On the cross, Christ did a new thing. And as Paul says in verse 16, it is this rule, the norm of the new creation, the measure of the cross of Jesus by which we are to live. In this alone can we boast, that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. In surrender to this truth do we give our whole lives. We've talked a lot about Martin Luther during this series, so it seems fitting to close it out with some Luther too. In January of 1521, Martin Luther was excommunicated by the Catholic Church and called to appear before a body called the Diet of Worms later that April. 
For the last four years, Luther had been developing and preaching his theology that rebuffed many of the teachings and requirements of the Catholic Church. Preaching instead that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ Jesus as revealed in the scriptures and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Diet of Worms, an assembly of governing leaders and church officials, demanded that Luther recant his writings and teachings or else be branded a heretic and face possibly deadly punishment. While Luther stood by his theology. If the courts could show him his error, he said, he would recant but until then, he held to what he preached. No matter the outcome, no matter the potential for persecution, he had surrendered his life to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he concluded his speech to this group with this famous line, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. I long to live a life that is so surrendered to Jesus Christ. I am the first to admit that that is a hard thing. There is so much that distracts, so much that allures, so much that feels more comfortable, so much for which we might settle. So I continue to pray Paul's prayer for myself and for all of us, in the words of Watts's hymn, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. Would you pray with me? That is indeed our prayer, God. May we boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus, by which salvation came into the world. When the cross seems foolish, help us remain firm in faith, that we might share the good news of this salvation with a world looking for life in all the wrong places. May we live in total surrender to you, giving you our soul, our life, and our all. Amen.